I'm going to be reading today out of the NIV. I normally read out of the ESV, but I really enjoy this version for a couple of reasons. And so uh, we are looking today at Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regimelech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priest of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Let me give us some context for these verses. We'll go through more of them in this chapter. Let me let you know a little bit of the backstory of what's happening. These messengers have come to the house of the Lord, to the priests that are there, that are, by the way, under a construction project right now. They've come to this place where the priests are and the prophets, and they're asking this question. Should we keep fasting in the fifth month like we have for so many years? During this particular fast for those of Israel, the people were lamenting the destruction of their temple some 70 plus years earlier by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And now for the past 70 plus years, they have kept this time of mourning and weeping and fasting to commemorate solemnly that which they had lost. The reason they are now asking this question, is this a good time to stop fasting? Is because things have really turned around for them as a nation, as a people. Uh, Babylon has been conquered by Persia. And the king of Persia, Cyrus, has made an edict that all Jewish exiles should be allowed to return to their homes, rebuild their temple, reenact their worship to their God and inhabit their land. It's a joyous time. We'll talk a little bit more about that time next Sunday. You can read more about it in the book of Ezra. It's during this time, this rebuilding time, that Zechariah, along with his contemporary Haggai, have been sent by the Lord as prophets to encourage the people as they work to restore their ruined lives and to rebuild their temple. Zechariah, it means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. He remembered his promise. He remembered what he said to them through other prophets, namely Jeremiah, who said, for 70 years you're gonna be in exile, but I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for a future and hope, not calamity, but to prosper you. And now in this time, it is coming to pass. And so now that the rebuilding is underway and hope has returned in so many areas, these guys from Bethel are wondering if it's time to stop the fast. You know, there's a lot of things that Christians do that even if they've been started for a good reason, become more religious than spiritual. They become habitual and not spirit-led. They become a routine. Well, this is just what we always do. A lot of things. It's it's kind of built into our, our, 
our DNA. We, we like rhythm, routine, rigidity. No, not rigidity. But that's what it happens. The routine becomes religious, which becomes rigid. Our devotion starts lagging. And now we're just going through the motions. Just going through the motions, but we lost the emotion. We're doing the bare minimum, mailing it in. Quiet quitting on the Lord with lackluster results. And we wonder why. (laughs) We wonder why God's not moving and speaking and doing like he once did when really the issue is not him. It's us. And I am sure the Lord is just as tired of our religious activity as we are. Probably more so. So I think the answer is not just to keep doing it, but to find out why we're doing it in the first place. To fast means to withhold something from yourself for a particular reason. I like to say it's giving up something that's good in order to get something that's better. It is to seek his face. Many times it's food or other special things like sweets or candy or TV or social media or screen time. But ultimately, it's something you've decided to withhold from yourself to focus on the Lord and upon what he is saying. One thing we must remember when we fast is that withholding from ourselves does not make us more holy or sanctified. This is a a trap that many people fall into. They assume that what they are doing is what's producing holiness and sanctification. God does that. His holiness, his righteousness is imputed to us and we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and there is a sanctifying process ongoing but it is only by what he does in us as we commit our ways to him that we get there. It's not in what we do on ourselves. What produces spiritual life in a fast is that we are saying no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. You see, the Bible says that if we walk in the spirit, we'll reap of the spirit. But it also says if we walk in the flesh, we get more flesh. And most of us, probably all of us here, need to take a break from some of the things that are feeding the flesh. Some of us, all of us, need to take a break from what's feeding the flesh and We need to say yes to the Spirit. And that's why times of prayer and fasting are so significant. They allow us to be saying yes to the Spirit. For some Christians, fasting is not on their radar at all. (laughs) Um, They think very little about doing doing without something, even if it means making room for something else, like the Lord. (laughs) But for other Christians we can fall into the trap of fasting for the wrong reason or fasting out of habit where our diet changes, but our hearts never do. While the New Testament does not mandate fasting, we must remember that Jesus himself fasted. And if he is our example, 
I think that's good enough reason for us to fast. And also we must remember that Jesus gave instructions on how we're to do it. Matthew 6 verse 16 says this. Jesus is speaking on this mountainside. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. This is a part of that sermon, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And he says, when you fast, notice he didn't say if you fast, but when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. (sighs) For they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. (laughs) Anybody like to do that? Have you ever seen somebody you think they probably are fasting? (laughs) It just looks like they are. (laughs) Something's wrong. And he says, they disfigure the faces to show others they're fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. That's all they get. That's all they get. They get the the fact that other people think, well, he must be fasting. That's all they get. Doesn't seem worth it to me. (laughs) Verse 17, but when you fast, put oil in your head and wash your face So that it will not be obvious to others that you were fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, I like that reward a whole lot better than the other. It's interesting to me what Jesus says and what he doesn't say about fasting. He doesn't say what we should fast And that means we should probably have a relationship with him enough to ask him what he thinks we should do when we do it. That's why we don't prescribe how we as a community are going to pray and fast. We really encourage you to get on your knees before the Lord and ask what he would have you fast. You see, this is not a religious mandate. This is a relational encounter. I encourage you and I encourage families to engage your family in this time of fasting. And so you should have your kids all getting together and saying, Lord, what would you have us set aside, withhold from ourselves in order to more fully seek your face? Now, I don't think it's real wise to take a four-year-old and have them do without food for 72 hours. See how well that goes for you. But I do think most children, especially those that are seeing and learning from their parents, can learn how to withhold from themselves in order to more fully hear what God is saying. What better time to do it than when they're at home with you? He doesn't say how long we're to fast or what frequency we're to fast either. And we should probably ask him about that too. What he does say is how we are not to fast. He gives a warning. We're not to be like the hypocrites, he calls them, who fast for all the wrong reasons, trying to look impressive and draw attention to themselves. Look how religious I am. Look how pious I am, how devoted, how holy I am. He says, don't do that. They all knew what he was talking about. Those religious leaders of his day The ones he calls hypocrites, they were notorious for looking holy while living in darkness themselves. Here's the dilemma for most people who follow the Lord. 
It's by grace that we are saved through faith, this not of ourselves, a gift from God, lest any man should boast. And yet, we start boasting. As soon as we get on the good graces, we figure, well, now that we're saved, we can certainly earn better stripes in heaven. And so we start working hard and we start being diligent about it and we start looking holy and all the while, we're dying inside because it is only by grace. These hypocrites were known for their formalism, but their fasting was devoid of purpose and power. They were also known for their legalism, adhering to every outward act of obedience, but their hearts were dark and rebellious as they judged others who appeared less holy than they were. They were also prone to what I call transactionalism, where they believed their devotion to keep all the rules would obligate God to remain loyal to them. They were prone, and most fatally, to be proud in all these isms. They did them well. They looked the part, but they were dead inside. Feeling certain that they were more righteous, and they were more mature, and they were more enlightened because of who they were, and what they did, and what they had learned. They are a warning, not only to those that were listening to Jesus on that day, They are a vivid warning to all of us as well. Jesus just wasn't impressed. He was not impressed with what he saw in the religious leaders, the hypocrites of their day. And he shreds their piety and he calls them out for their hypocrisy, making crystal clear that fasting and every other spiritual discipline that we engage in must be done unto the Lord not to impress others, unto him, not for others. Let's look back at Zechariah chapter four, or excuse me, verse four, what he says to this probing question that those from Bethel came to ask. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, For the last 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Can you imagine? These people from Bethel. Bethel was a historically significant town in Israel. About 10 miles north of Jerusalem. It was historically known as a, as a town of priests. It's where many of the priests would reside. It's kind of like, a, kind of like a, a seminary for priests. It was a training area. Significant things happened in Bethel. Also, some very bad things happened in Bethel. And now in this time, these priests that are still in this town or who have returned to this town, uh, they're looking for some insight They're sending messengers to the temple priests and to the prophets with this leading question. You know what a leading question is, right? You ever had somebody ask you a leading question? You you feel like there's an agenda associated with it, right? You feel like there's some ulterior motive going on here. The leading question is really not a question at all. It's really just 
It's just an attempt to tell somebody something cloaked in a question. We really want to make a statement here, but we're going to ask you a question to see if you, you know, if you can understand it first, and then we'll, then we'll make it clear what we think is obvious. Maybe it's more like a testing question where they're pretty certain of the answer, but they just ask so that they see if you're on their side or not. I get asked these questions sometimes, you know. I'm going to be careful. Not by anybody in here. But I've been asked several questions about doctrine and theology and stuff. And, uh, and normally, if there's good heartedness in it, you can tell. Just tell the spirit of it. But if it's a test, you know, the, the Pharisees and scribes, they tested Jesus all the time with testing questions. And I, I've had that, you know, where I know what they're asking is really not what, they're not interested in what I have to say. They're interested in what they're about to say. They have it already figured out. They're just wanting to know if I'm as enlightened as they are. But God answers their question with a few questions of his own. He says, when you fasted and mourned for those past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were feasting, when you were eating and drinking at all these festivals that are going on, wasn't it just for you that you did that? Feels like God is calling their motives into question. He is checking to see what they're really all about. And then, through Zechariah, God repeats a common theme that is used by many of the prophets throughout the Old Testament to assess Israel's ongoing fasts. Namely, that obedience is better than sacrifice and that loving your neighbor is better than heartless ritual. Here's what Zechariah says in verse seven. And these are not the words, the, are, excuse me, are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. He said, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. This is all so reminiscent of the other prophets that said similar things. Like Isaiah, who more than 250 years before Zechariah says something almost identical in Isaiah 58. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves. Notice the sarcasm in what's being said. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is what you call a fast a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, says the Lord? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke. Is, not, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them 
and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Zechariah's response to the men of Bethel and Isaiah's earlier words 255 years before to Israel are not just for them. They're also here for us. They're here for us to examine our hearts. And as we spend our time seeking his face in prayer and fasting to ask ourselves, are we doing it the way that he wants? Has our fasting become ritualistic or does it come out of obedient hearts? Are we busy doing religious activity, bowing our heads, doing without, humbling ourselves, yet we forsake his call to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, not give our food to the hungry, or provide shelter to the poor. Simply put, what these prophets are asking is when we fast, do we do it for him or do we do it for ourselves? I used to be an insurance uh, property adjuster. Uh, I've had several different careers. And uh, this was one that I really enjoyed a lot. Um, I like helping people. And so I liked helping people in some of their most challenging times as a homeowner, like when a pipe burst and it flooded their house, or when a tornado knocked a roof off a house, um, or when a hurricane caused severe damage to their house, or probably the worst is when a fire burned down a house. I always felt the greatest satisfaction in those moments, those really critical hard times, because people were so uh, desperate, what are we gonna do? It's so shocking to the system. And to be able to go in and provide just some encouragement to provide some resources so they could go have a hotel to stay in and food to eat and not worry about things and we would take care of these things. It was really a rewarding job. I always wanted to go above and beyond the expectations for my customers and also for my company. It was a desire of mine. And as long as I felt like they were grateful, which they normally were, and they didn't presume upon my good nature, which they normally didn't, then I was more than happy to help. But in those rare occasions when I felt presumed upon or I felt unappreciated, I could quickly lose my patience and lose my cool with the whole thing. I was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, I found a degree of victory in this area and trust me, I am sure that none of you have ever made me feel this way. I'm scanning the room just to make sure. Yeah, we're good, we're good, all right. But this past week, God gave me another chance to face more of my ugliness. And I had a request from someone, someone outside of our church, but someone who uh, I've helped on many occasions. And the ask was really, really big. It was big financially and it was big uh, schedule-wise. <clears throat> and I wasn't sure if I should do it, but in quiet prayer to the Lord, as I'm even pondering and thinking, this is what I felt the Lord say to me. 
Don't do it for him. Do it for me. So I did. But that wasn't the end of it. His situation grew more complicated and more costly as the week progressed. And quite frankly, it required more than what I had originally signed up for. And while he was very appreciative, I found myself being tested by the Lord. Was I going to get irritated and feel presumed upon? And in the middle of that, I remembered what I was preaching about today. I hate it when that happens. I hate being the object lesson of my sermons. And God took me back to that first encounter with him and he said, when he said, don't do it for him, do it for me. And then I felt him insert me into these scriptures replace me and my situation with their situation. I felt him say, when you did this nice thing and all those nice things you've done for others for all these years, was it really for me that you did it? And when you had good feelings for all the serving you did for others, were you not just doing it for yourself? It matters to God what we do and why we do it. Motives matter. We can't just play games and think that's going to be enough. No one else may see it, but God does. He sees your heart. He sees what motivates you. He knows if you're mailing it in or not. You can't fool him. He will not be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall reap. Who is it? Who is it for when we fast? Who are we doing it for when we pray? Who are we doing it for when we give and serve and bless and encourage? Is it for him? Or is it for ourselves? The Lord urged Zechariah to dig into the motives behind their fasting and their feasting. Their fast and feast were no longer unto the Lord. They had become an occasion for people to show off, to look faithful, to be always the ones that did it. We're your people, Lord. To formalize and to legalize and to transactionalize their obedience into pridefully feeling good about themselves and not remembering what he called them to do in the first place. It had all become a religious game where they were just going through the motions without the emotion, where they were just mailing it in, doing the bare minimum, quietly quitting on the Lord. The Lord is urging us in these days to dig into our motives to peel back the layers and let the truth come out. Why do we do what we do? 
What is motivating us? Why do we pray and fast? Why do we even show up? Why do we serve? Why are we generous? Why are we kind? Why are we giving? My challenge to us as a people is that it might be for him and not for ourselves. May it advance his purpose and not our own. And may it be for his glory and no one else's. Help us, Lord Jesus. Don is going to come and share just for a few moments. And then what we're going to do is spend some time silently together examining our hearts and asking the Lord to dig in and help us see why we do what we do. If you're here today in person or virtually or listening to this later, I want you to stop and say, God is here and he brought me here. God is here and he brought me here. He is here, ready, willing, and able to break chains, to reroute thoughts, to change motives to rewrite our history in his perspective. In short, to deliver you and me from you and me. <laughs> That's right. If I am disappointed in me, it produces a faithless pit that sucks the life out of me and everyone who comes close. That's right. If I'm disappointed in another person, it makes me judgy and critical and diminishes my love for God. And if I am disappointed by circumstances, I have become the victim and I am denying God's sovereign rule over my life. That's right. Don't miss out today by calling a sin, a tendency, a personality trait, or excuse it by saying you have become a victim of somebody else's choices. That's right. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of freedom. And conviction is God's greatest kindness expressed to us through the Holy Spirit. Yes. Feeling better is not enough. It's possible to leave today and feel a little bit of burden lifted and miss the chance to be free. Real transformation deep inside is what God is offering us. Will you, will I, receive his grace and his forgiveness and the power to change? I am telling you, no matter what it is that has been chasing you, whether it's a long-term area where you've had little bits of victories and lots of disappointments, God is here. Yes, yes. And he brought you here. And it is his desire that we live the freest we can live. Because that 
is what will testify to him in a world that is desperate to be free from themselves. Yes. Father, thank you that your unconditional love does not require the right response, but that you create it, create it in us. You've, through salvation, given us a heart that can want to obey you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can give us the motive to do what is pleasing to you. And through the investment of community and all the spiritual disciplines that you provide as tools, you can create us to be obedient children of God. Yes, you can. And you don't ever stop saving us and keeping us and redeeming us. Father, we invite you to come into our lives and into our hearts, every part, to search us and try us and know us and see if there be any wicked way in us. Lord, speak the truth to us. Yes. And help us agree with you about it. That's right. So that we can take this next step into freedom. Yes, yes. Father, go after the things that distract us, that diminish our love for you, that cut at the roots of our faith, that diminish our testimony, cause us to walk worthy, Lord. Yes. Have your way yes. in us, God. We lay it all out before you. There's nothing hidden before you. Thank you. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. You're faithful, God. You are a relentless pursuer of each of us. You're a covenant-keeping God who will chase us down. Put a mirror in front of our faces so we can see what needs to be changed. And help us to humbly come before you in your presence where we can be changed. Lord, we don't want to play games. 
We don't want to mail it in. We don't want to go through the motions without any emotion. We want to be all in, Lord. Take whatever it is that we've seen in our hearts and our lives, the things you've pointed out to us, even as we're sitting here in prayer. And perform surgery on us, oh God. Extract that which is vile and worthless and create in us that which is precious. And I pray, Lord, that the work that you do in us will be long-lasting. That sins and temptations and habits that have been ongoing for years would be broken in the name of Jesus. The places where we have been distressed and discouraged and anxious would be healed in a moment. That you would work in us your perfect will. We submit to you, Lord, as your children. Have your way, O oh God. Yes. In Jesus' name.